Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. In our first interview of season nine, we are joined by Grant Chisnell, CEO and founder of Left of Boom and host of the Crisis Talks podcast. Grant and his organization specialize in crisis management, risk and business continuity management, and stakeholder engagement. He's got a huge breadth of experience in crisis preparation and management, and has been involved in product recalls, cyclones, civil unrest, global cyber attacks, and air crashes. So definitely someone we can learn a lot from. Grant covers the shift he has seen in management attitudes to crisis preparation and management, how organizations change after they've been through a crisis event, what those first few hours are like when the brand stuff hits the spinning thing, the importance of people versus process when crisis events happen, and how we can balance empathy with accountability when cybersecurity events are unfolding publicly. Over to the conversation. Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara. Today, we are joined by Grant Chisnell, the CEO and the founder of Left of Boom. How are you going today, Grant? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Gar. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, really, really excited to have this conversation. It, it's one of those ones that we were saying just off mic, uh, we, we sort of had to stop chatting, which I think is always a good sign when you uh, you, you meet somebody and you, you realize you could happily sit down with a couple of pints and probably get lost for many, many hours. So I think that's always a good sign. Yeah, never too scared of a chat, mate. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's good to hear. Um, well, so look, really welcome along to the pod, Grant, and thanks so much for taking the time out. I know um, it's never lost to me that you know folks like you are very busy, so um, very much appreciated, and thanks on the uh, the audience's behalf as well. Um, okay, I suppose a couple of opening things, but lovely to hear how you kind of got to the point where you're the CEO founder of Left of Boom, and uh, and then you know as part B of that question, like it's an awesome name. Love to hear where that uh, came from as well. Yeah, well, left of boom was a term that we used within the military and intelligence services where it's talking about all the things that you can do prior to an incident occurring, so prior to that bang occurring, prior to the, the attack or the first shot where, you know, the old story, story goes that, you know, everyone has the best plans until that first shot rings out. So, so anything left of boom is what you can do to ideally preempt and prepare yourselves and ideally prevent situations from occurring to start with. So it's a great metaphor for, you know, in risk management, what you can do, again, to prevent, prepare, and uh, ideally uh, ensure that you're really well uh, arranged before anything does occur. Because once something does happen, you're in that chaos mode. And right of boom is really trying to get control very quickly, trying to ensure that you're responding, you're reassuring your stakeholders, and you can recover as efficiently as possible. So it's worked out to be a wonderful metaphor for the work that we're doing in preparing organisations for the worst case and making sure that they're confident and proactive in any situations. Um, And that sort of came from the background that I have, which was a military background initially. I went into a corporate affairs firm thereafter, so I've got this real weird mix of corporate affairs, stakeholder engagement with then the background and strategy and tactics around risk and and how we apply all those in a leadership context. So it's been a a really good journey. And I I think the last sort of, it's funny now though too, because the military sort of formed a lot of what I've done, but then I've been out longer than I was in the military now. So in those last 15 years in particular, I've I've been really privileged to to work with some amazing organisations and develop, I suppose, uh, an understanding of some of the real challenges that exist in a corporate and business environment mm-hmm. and how you can prepare, um, not just for um, the, the things that can really, you know, affect your operations or your people, but the things that can also affect your overall reputation in the marketplace. 
definitely. And uh, you have been privy to some of the organizations and things you've worked on. And it's, uh, yeah, to say it's an impressive resume is probably uh, not doing it any any justice. So, uh, and, maybe, and, you know, maybe we get to touch on some of that as we have the conversation today. But like one of the, the sort of biggest things we've seen in recent years, and I guess you're very much aware of this, is that there has been a kind of pretty significant kind of increase in the, the volume of those very high-profile, high-impact cyber attacks. It felt like, you know, the calendar Q4 last year was, you know, it was different. There was there was a coverage in the media, a conversation business that I, I personally haven't really felt in the same way. Um, and it feels like there's finally getting this kind of, like, really a good focus on uh, cyber kind of being nearly certain, right? You know, that the boom is going to happen. And, you know, to your point, they got to think of it staying left of it uh, as much as possible so as you work in crisis management and then the prep for that like have you felt that shift or what's your perception of that yeah it's sort of weird because we, it sort of waved over last uh, 10 years so going back um again sort of 10 years ago it was off the back of stuxnet you had a lot of focus mm-hmm. around SCADA and around the potential for cyber attacks to impact infrastructure and that sort of came off the back of, you know, the focus on terrorism and the effects on, again, critical infrastructure in, you know, in our living environments. So, so we sort of had a wave of that sort of focus back then. It sort of dropped off a bit. But in the US, they've been really focused on it for, for quite an ex, you know, extended period of time. And, and they're quite open about what they're doing in their identification and then response to the, these types of scenarios. So particularly when you're looking at data breaches. Um, and I had a stint with a firm called UpGuard, who are an amazing firm that do um, that that do a lot of data breach hunting, essentially. And they they'd found such breaches as like the Cambridge Analytica breach and things like that. So, seeing what they were doing in the US and how how more advanced the US was around um, uh, accepting this as a risk, um, acknowledging that it's something that's going to happen to most organisations at some stage, but then also not victim shaming them. Yep. And and I think what we've seen over the last, you know, particularly the last quarter of last year, was a fair bit of victim shaming aimed towards the organisations that were actually the victims of an attack. Now, now it's easy to say you're a victim in some cases, but there is a responsibility that clearly came out of those last few attacks. So Optus yep. and then into Medibank in particular, you know, they definitely have an obligation as a um, as a, a capture of or those people, those organisations capture private data. They have to retain it in the appropriate appropriate ways, and they also have to dispose of it in the appropriate ways. And that, I think, was some of the key messaging that came from government last year around data as a should be treated as a liability versus an asset. But I don't think really we're still there yet. And I think what they were doing last year, I think we're mature enough yet. Sorry, is what I'm saying here. I don't think we're mature enough to sort of really accept that data is a liability mm-hmm. or an asset. We, we're at that sort of point now where where we recognise that if we're holding this data and it is breached, that there is an exposure. Um, but I think the, the reality is that we're not really mature enough to have a, you know, a mature conversation with organisations around if this goes wrong, um, what are you going to do to make sure that you are protecting the reputations and the people that have been affected by these things in an effective way? What are you doing to also recover the organisation and restore uh, the faith and trust they have with you as an organisation. And then thirdly, you know, how can you make sure that you're learning from these things and sharing those learnings across the across the wider business spheres so that we can actually learn from these mistakes and make ourselves more resilient in the future? I don't think we're there yet. 
Yeah, I, I really like your point around data as a liability because I think we've got this cultural thing in most corporates of like more data is better. Data is the new oil, you know, data, data, data. Yeah. But actually, I think if you kind of financially incentivize it or or regulatory incentivize it so that it becomes more of a liability, at least there'll be more, I think, curation of the stuff that maybe is actually useful. Uh, you know, even for something like marketing, you know, it's not it's not the the evil that you know, sometimes it's made out to be. But you know, if it's if it's good marketing and clean and sort of ethical marketing, then that's fine. Um, but that sort of over collection of data, it blows my mind. I I've talked about this a little bit. I went karting recently. You know, little carts uh, that you kind of bomber in track, and um, to do the to do the thing, they have a little app where you go to on your phone. And I couldn't believe the stuff they were asking for. You know, for for something as trivial as jumping in a cart and having a bit of fun, it was bonkers. You know, it was dress, date of birth, um, mother's maiden name, weights. I'm like, really? Um, absolutely insane. It, it does. It really begs the question about why you're actually capturing data. Yeah. True yeah. to it was Dreyfus, who the Attorney General, who said that it should be a liability, true a liability, not an asset. Um, what that should then translate to business terms is: well, is it on your balance sheet? Are you treating it as a, do you have a depreciation schedule against that? Are you treating that as a cost or are you treating that as uh, as an asset on your register? And if you are treating it either way, you're actually, um, you're actually managing that data in a much more effective manner. And look, I think that's what they were signaling. So that's why we had a big focus on these and they were big high profile events, you know, nine, mm. nine million plus records, personal records affected. So that's going to attract a lot of attention. Um, but equally, over the break here, we've had the fire rescue services in Victoria here have been targeted. They've been shut down since 15th of, January, uh, 15th of December, rather, um, and there's not been many comments made by any of the ministers uh, from the responsible departments at all around what's going on. So, so I'm, I think there's some real challenges for business now about what they're going to do and how they're going to respond. You need to definitely have the right measures in place to prevent these things from occurring left of boom. You need to make sure you're well prepared left of boom for these things to occur and you're treating it as if it's going to happen. Um, and then when it does occur, you need to have really strong plans in place to respond, uh, ideally manage the data breach notifications process in a proactive and, uh, and effective manner. Um, and likewise, you need to have the ability to manage the multiple other issues that happen during these things. So how are you going to restore? How are you going to recover? How are you going to maintain operations? What's your business continuity plans to continue the business that you're in in order to reassure your stakeholders that you can be trusted. Definitely. You, you sort of mentioned uh, the you know, the increase in empathy, which I think is, is spot on. I think more and more as the cybersecurity industry, there's less finger pointing because I think there is an acceptance that you know the, this stuff is going to happen to pretty much everybody. Um, one of the things, and I think I originally read this in a kind of Gartner paper, but it was about the idea of, um, you know, if it is inevitable that there's going to be a breach, and assuming there's no negligence in terms of the sort of controls that are in place and the, the, the security strategy um, at a CISO or a security leadership perspective, um, have you seen any kind of change in perspective of the value of a CISO rising when they've actually been through the the incident or the breach or, or whatever? So, you know, rather than something happens, hey, we're going to fire the person as a PR move, actually, we're going to keep them. We're probably going to pay them more because now they've sort of been through it and they get it. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, I mean, the, the rise of the CISO has been happening for a while now. And I think the value has been, has been seen uh, really from Toyota onwards um, mm. here in Australia around the impact that they can have and, and ideally how they can prevent, again, these things from occurring. That, and that's primarily where you want their role focused on. What are you doing to 
to reduce any opportunities for attack, how you're doing, how you're limiting your threat profiles, how you're also looking at your own defensive postures to make sure that you are, again, preventing these attacks. Um, I think the challenge for SISOs now, though, is that with the increased attention from, from these different high-profile events, that's actually distracting them from their primary jobs at the moment. So they're actually having to go back and re-educate the business a lot more around what the threat means in the context of their organisation. Mm. And let's, I mean, so if you look at the Optus situation from late last year, uh, that's caused a lot of boards to go and ask their own businesses, what does that mean for us? And in many cases, not, not many of these businesses are a business consumer business, you know. So in a B2C environment, when you have a cyber attack, uh, you've got the real potential for a, for a liquidity event to occur straight away. Um, so that's a different type of threat profile, not just notwithstanding the, the data breach, notwithstanding the, the loss of sensitive information for customers or commercial sensitive information, notwithstanding the loss of PII. So the context of each of these is slightly different. So SISOs need to be more and more effective now in educating the business about what the risk means to their organisation and then what they are doing more and more to prevent these things from occurring to start with. Um, and I think that's the challenge that they're facing at the moment is that there's, um, that focus means that they are being drawn away from doing their job, which is re- we want them more and more so now um, out there protecting the organisations uh, like never before. So if I understand you correctly there, you, you reckon they're spending more time explaining what they're doing than actually doing the job of... Yeah, I think there's a balance. That they ha- Look, yeah. I think that's, that's naturally that has to happen though because, you know, yep. the, the, um, the, the threat's shared. So the, we all know that cyber risk now is not owned by a CISO anymore and I think that that's becoming more and more apparent within organisations. Um, so, but in that meantime, in this interim period now, what we're finding is that these CISOs are being drawn all over the place now trying to educate the business further about what these risks actually mean to them. And, and the ones that are really effective at, at, in, at, 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 I suppose, articulating the risk and articulating what they're doing and describing what they're doing to prevent these things from occurring uh, are succeeding more in enabling the whole organisation to understand the threat in the right context. Well, that's sort of a, maybe a nice segue then into, like I said this at the start, you've worked at a really long list of organisations and I'm guessing over the time you'll start to see patterns emerge in, in terms of a kind of leadership's understanding of that need for sort of strong crisis management. Um, like what are those patterns or I'm assuming they, they do exist? Uh, there's a bit of an assumption there, but yeah, assuming they do exist, like what, what are they? I think the, the organisations that are embracing failure as a, just a general mindset, they're embracing the, the things that could go wrong within their, within their operations. They, they're, they're embracing things that could go wrong within their strategic environment. They're looking ahead at these sort of situations and looking at the way things will emerge and affect their own organisations. Those people, those leaders that do that are, are the adaptive leaders that are able to see these things occurring to start with and start to preempt them before they even get to a point of being a realised risk. And those ones, those people that are doing that, they're the ones who, you know, they're not necessarily seeing something like COVID coming, but they're looking what the effect or the consequences is going to be on their organisation and they're able to adapt their organisation more effectively. So those ones that are doing that, are, I think, are, are generally um, are generally positioning themselves a lot better than, than most in the marketplace. And what they're able to do then is look at that consequence, look what things they need to do to prevent that thing from affecting them even further 
And those people, they have the right strategies in place to really address those challenges before they really arise. Um, so those, I mean, there's a few of those that we're dealing with in a few different um, in a few different fields. Um, and they are generally what would sort of, I can't speak about them specifically, but I think the characteristics are, of them are, A, they have a really solid understanding of the purpose. You know, they know exactly what they're about and what value they create within their communities or their shareholders and stakeholders they're dealing with, and they really value it. Um, and B, they are proactive in everything that they're doing. Anytime they mm. see an anomaly or change within their operating environment, they're onto it. And they're either working through an option or a number of different options that they could work through to, to address that risk before it emerges. Or if it does emerge, they're proactive in the way they're handling it. Um, and so that embracing failure means that they're looking constantly at the way things are working and they're making sure that they're ready and, adapt, ready and adapting if anything does occur. Um, the ones that are more reactive, unfortunately, they're... They, they tend to be a bit chaotic when something is mm. happening. So you can see that they're, they're, they're probably a bit like the old analogy of the, the tail wagging the dog. So there's things occurring within the marketplace. They're trying to constantly adjust to what's happening rather than just adapting and continuing that steady flow through. So, so those organisations, when something does strike them, they tend to be found wanting. So you get the two ends of the spectrum and there's a lot that are in between, but realistically we're seeing those that are really adaptive and thinking ahead and others that are more reactive and chaotic when something goes wrong. Um, yeah. and, look, and, and look, there's, there's no doubt there's, there's always going to be some element of chaos when you've got a big bang event. So the, there's always an acceptance for those adaptive organisations that's, that's going to occur. But you just find they're a bit calmer <laughs> and, yeah. and, and uh, they're more ready for what's going to come next. And and so often the way is, you know, I think it's that preparation so often leads to, you know, reduction, not necessarily to your point, like that the mess isn't going to happen, but you sort of, you, you kind of feel calmer about it because you've already thought about it, you know, um, rather than, yeah, just kind of, as you say, reacting. It, it leads me to sort of think in broader business terms how, I mean, so often the the shorter term costs aren't really considered in terms of the longer term consequences. And I think, crisis and, and cyber is often in that bucket where there's an overhead to operations or you know there's there's sort of a a big blip in, in terms of spending or you know impact to productivity to get something done but you're actually so much better in the longer term but that's a hard one to get across the line so often is there any anything you've seen that works particularly well to convince the convince of the value of things like crisis management and the, the overhead yeah yeah, there's nothing better than a crisis to, to again, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah. reinforce the need for that preparation. But what we find that those ones that ha have used, uh, have been through something, yeah, they're generally more willing to engage in the preparedness activities and see the value of them. But that does wane over time. And and let's face it, I mean, businesses aren't in the business of, a business of just managing crises, you know. Mm -hmm. So as much as I'd like to think that they are thinking about what the work that we do Every day, I, I'm also pragmatic enough to know that they've actually got a business to get out there and run. Yep. But I think it's uh, back to the point before that you know the the, the more the, the more sort of adaptive organisations are the ones that are thinking about risk, not just for what it means to uh, from a negative perspective, but what it means from an opportunity. And and so there's opportunity, I think, now with the way that that organisations are preparing themselves. To think about, okay, if this does go wrong, there's an opportunity for us to do something completely differently mm. in the future and maybe change or adapt the way that they're operating. And, you know, you hear a lot of innovation that comes out of crisis. Um, 
what we're trying to reinforce now is that why wait for a crisis to happen? Why don't you start to innovate now or change and adapt now? And that's where that's where these activities that we can do and we are doing with the organisation, we ran like a two-day strategic risk workshop last few days. Um, and we're looking, yes, at what the risks or issues might be for a particular program that the team are working on over the next few years. But equally, it turned out a heap of opportunity. And mm-hmm. those are those opportunities, I think, that you can garner from these types of risk activities, which, to be frank, risk professionals aren't selling well enough in terms of what they're, the value that they're delivering. So, therefore, if you're going to everyone say, I'm going to run a risk switch, they go, oh, my goodness, it's going to take two, four hours out of my day and the whole executive team mm. versus we're going to be looking at opportunities. We're going to be looking at the way that we can present ourselves or prepare ourselves, but we know it's going to be a challenging market over the next 12 to 24 months, and here's how we're going to prepare ourselves for that uh, for that challenge. And it's a slightly different proposition. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And here's the thing. So, you, like, you obviously work very broadly. You work we're focused on cyber resilience it's just the nature of this podcast but you're across things like bushfires covid cyclones um you know standard it outages and things like civil unrest and and natural disasters are obviously you know on your list of your long list of uh crises that you manage but you know, one of the things i've often heard talked about is like cyber is sort of unique and you know it's it's sort of driven by humans in a way that you know maybe a, a flood or covid sort of isn't um but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Is there any kind of unique attributes of crisis events that are uh, the result of cyber attacks that are maybe going to lead you to recommend different approaches to how you prep or, or how you manage them? Yes. Yeah, so the I think the, the the fundamental difference I've seen in cyber attack, we've been involved now in in two global cyber attacks um, with, a, with a client. Uh, we've been involved then in a, another cyber attack where, where, where a third party who are a client of ours were affected by, um, a, 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 I suppose, a, a, a client of theirs had the attack, but they were affected by it. Mm. We've been through a number of system and IT outages as well. So they're, they're more own goal style sort of activities more than anything else. But these events are very different from most other crises. And on the other side of the fence, we've been involved in, like you said, some operational and you know, natural disaster events. Um, the most highest profile one we're involved in was the Sundance air crash where, where 11 people were killed uh, and the whole board of the of Sundance resources were, were killed in that air crash. Um, you know, those are deeply distressing and deeply impacting uh, uh, crisis events on, mm. on the people and all the, uh, all the stakeholders that are affected by that, the family members, uh, the next kin, clearly, the, the, the employees of the organisations, et cetera, there. You know, those are deeply distressing situations that 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 um, that, that any organisation should never have to go through. The the difficulty with a cyber event, and they're probably the next most challenging events that we've ever been involved in, is that they are all encompassing. So, mm. you know, in the two global ones that we had, uh, all IT systems were shut down. There was zero means of communication across the business. Um, all frontline employees had no means of communicating with or or responding to any demands that might be occurring aside from if they were receiving a mobile phone call from a client. So you've got these situations where it affects your whole organisation. Normally a crisis event might affect, you know, it might start out in a scene somewhere, you might have an incident or emergency, Uh, there might be a number of fatalities that might have occurred there, but it escalates up. So you have a team comes together in the field, you have a team comes together at an office and then you have a team come together at the crisis team. So it's generally like three tiers come together 
they're working together, you're coordinating with each other, you're working through generally a pretty standard playbook on, you know, manage the scene, control the scene, contain the situation, deal with the family members, stakeholders or otherwise, and then deal with the wider issues and stakeholders in the media, government regulators, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty standard playbook. Mm -hmm. Cyber, everything's down all at once potentially. And then you've got flow-on consequences of, you know, how are you managing your business, how you maintain the continuity and implementing continuity plans to start with, how you're communicating with your own employees, um, how you're then also communicating and, and uh, managing your customer expectations. And then, by the way, you've got a, an active threat working against you in some cases who might be demanding a, rans a ransom off you, might be demanding payment for access to the systems again, or might be running a ransomware virus throughout your whole um, environment again, requiring you to shut everything down completely. On top of that, you've then got to you know, assess this whole situation, look at what the threat is, try and work out where they're coming from at the same time as looking at things such as data breach potential or everything else. So, so the challenge on, the, on these things are immediate, far-reaching, centralised, and affect everything around them. So the preparation for these is very different because you're normally looking at IT incident management, for example, mm. stepping up an escalation point and a pathway. So they might have a number of anomalies that they might be picking up. Security operations centre might be identifying issues and then presenting issues or anomalies that they might be seeing in the operating environments. But when that big bang happens, it's meaning that you need to have all of these teams working simultaneously, coordinated, communicating with each other, often without a platform to do so. So that challenge in its own right is the starting point for these cyber events, which means it's very, very difficult to communicate to a wide forum outside just the response, but also what you're doing with your stakeholders, your customers, everything globally. So I think that that... that um, what we find, unfortunately, is that most of the preparations are really focused on that point of incident. They might think, okay, we're going to we'll identify a threat. We'll then, you know, stop a few things. We might have to do a DR or disaster recovery for certain uh, certain systems. The reality is what they should be planning on is complete shutdown mm -hmm. because everything else is all your consequence management. So you're then practicing how you're going to communicate under that, under that pressure. You're practicing how you're implementing your multiple streams of investigation, forensics and other sort of things that need to occur. And you're on top of that, you're practising them. What are you going to do around your stakeholders, your customers, um, your data breach identification, notification process? All those things need to be brought together simultaneously and practising that is really hard. So the ones that do that well, they're really thinking about it, not just around the, you know, how do we stop this thing from occurring or, or how do we make sure it's only just an IT incident? We're thinking about it from a whole of business impact and bring a whole of business response. It, it's a funny one. I, I do wonder if I was wearing like a Garmin heart rate monitor or something, even the verbal description uh, so viscerally done of, of like what it was, we just see a sort of an increase in heart rate. It, it, it blows my mind, the complexity. Um, and I think it's often misunderstood because I think, you know, I think it's misunderstood in a couple of ways. I think it's, uh, you know, people visualize this stuff. It's like Bob and County clicks on a link and, you know, five minutes later, all the systems are locked up. And then you, all you have to do is turn the machines off, you know, maybe re-image and then, you know, boot them up and away you go. And, and actually, it's just incredibly complex um, when it actually comes down to it.
Well, you know what it's like. I mean, you go to a normal help desk situation any any day. If something's not quite right with your you know, with your computer, you go to turn it on. You call the help desk. You might log a ticket. You then might get a response. So you're sort of sitting there waiting. That's literally what's happening across hundreds or thousands of people potentially, which means that you're starting to get these lag in what the IT help desk is able to do. Mm. All of a sudden, then you've got these other, other triggers that might be starting to happen. So it's not always like that apparent. You turn your computer on and you've been hacked is on your screen. So, <laughs> so that's the challenge. You've got these, these emerging situation. There's got a there's no nothing more uncertain than than a virtual environment. And and trying to educate a non-technical person about uncertainty in a virtual environment, it's like two or three steps removed. It's like them watching the Matrix for the first time. You know, yeah. so so for these, for the non-technical people, particularly, you know, people like myself who are generally older as well in business, trying to think about, okay, hang on, everything's shut down. Why can't we just turn it back on again? Oh, you mean you had to shut it down? So what about our customers? You know, you're authorised to shut that down. Oh, and by the way, you've got a ransom now that you need to think about. Well, are we going to pay? Are we not? All these decisions start to flow out that you need from people pretty quickly or otherwise you have this lag in the whole organisational response which affects everything. And, and with all of that, and you mentioned uh, uh, Sundance, which I mean, that just sounds so awful, but, you know, we're, we're starting to have the conversation around, um, you know, with uh, critical national infrastructure and the potential for human life to be impacted in potentially a significant way. And, you know, I don't think we've really seen that in the way that I think we're all obviously quite frightened of. But how do you think that changes the equation? You know, we've seen a few attacks on healthcare organizations and I think, was it Germany? We've got the first kind of line of sight between a cyber attack and, and loss of life, but, it, you know, it's starting to feel different. Um, what do you think changes in the equation for prep and management when human life gets uh, starts to be involved? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it, it, it sort of sharpens the focus, obviously, and um, and that's a good thing. Um but I think the, the the risk when you're talking about operational systems versus you're talking about information systems are, are often are often quite different. And but you are seeing, like you said, now that connection between the two occurring a lot more. So the threat now is you know someone could use IS in order to access OS in order to do something that might cause a fatality is is what the risk is really about at the moment, um, or it might cause an infrastructure piece to shut down. Organisations have actually been preparing for that for a fairly long time. The IS to OS connection, and they've had, you know, they've had sort of separations of infrastructure and the like to enable that or prevent those sort of things from occurring. So I think there's some good preparedness around that. I think the, I think the the Critical Infrastructure Act changes are going to more and more highlight the the impact of cyber as being a major risk mm. uh, category, and I think that's a positive thing as well. Um, I'm just worried right now about still about the victim shaming uh, of big organisations, which I fear will drive them more underground in what they're doing to prevent these things from occurring. So, mm -hmm. you know, for example, the situation with Optus where they were suggested it was an unsophisticated attack or was reported as being an unsophisticated attack. I think that that really forces now whatever review they're doing or have done to look at what the cause was they're going to be more reluctant to share the results of that now, which means that another organisation might have the same situation ready to go, might have the same risk ready to go, but the consequences might be more life-threatening. 
So I think you know the challenge that we're seeing with all these events and the challenges with the Critical Infrastructure Act is making sure that we're making the whole community resilient to these things, making sure that starts with the awareness, uh, making sure that the organisations are actually working together where they can to prevent these things from occurring and working with government where they can to prevent these things from occurring. And they're really well prepared for something does happen, what's the response going to be to mitigate and limit the impact on that potential for loss of life or potential for disruption to operations. So, so if they can do those things effectively, then I think we're going to be in a better position. But I do worry right now still that we're we're sort of we're attacking it from the wrong end in some ways. Mm. You've mentioned the uh, not shaming. I totally agree with you. By the way, um, I would love to get your take on the the sort of balance between. Um, the potential, and I think we've seen some examples where you could argue there's been negligence from a security approach. And um, you know, how do you balance the the value of a public conversation? Because I do think there's some value in when when something has you know gone to the negligence side of things, like having that conversation as well, without sort of getting to the point where uh, organizations go underground, and start hiding what's happening, or you know under-reporting because they're worried about the sort of P or, P or impacts. So how do you think we navigate those two, those two parts? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think the, and this is where I think the victim shaming is going to be a challenge because now, uh, you know, uh, for example, there's, there's obviously a, a push towards not going down the path of paying a ransom and, and having a collective view on that will reduce that, um, ideally reduce the threat because, if if, you know, if more people are paying, then the argument is that there's going to be more attacks. The reverse could be true as well. That if some are paying, then they're actually just they're actually just reducing that risk in some ways as well. Now, if we look back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, kidnap for ransom was taking people. Now the ransom the ransom guys have shifted their business model from physical taking people to actually now virtually taking data for ransom. So that adaptation has meant that we are now, again, having this question, well, should we pay a ransom or not? Now, my point here is, is, that, is that all these different mechanisms that are in place to try and you know, collectively prevent these things from occurring will only work as long as organisations are more willing to share, communicate, um, understand and, uh, and actually appreciate the threat and then take collective measures to prevent them from occurring. Now, if... If every time something is happening in the future where victim shaming the ones that have been affected, then we, of course it's going to throw them underground. Of course there's probably going to be payments for these guys that are going to be the net result because they don't want to be the next one in the spotlight facing the, the scrutiny that was occurring last year. And arguably I spoke to a lot of different organisations about what they would have done versus what they've seen from Medibank, for example, and there's some quite some, some um, substantial arguments there which suggest that Paying would have actually reduced the threat to those individuals that lost their data in such a such a terrible way. So there's always going to be these two sides to this uh, this preparedness uh, equation here. And I think I think more and more, as long as we're if we're trying to over uh, if we're trying to either victim shame or we're trying to over legislate these things, then what we're going to find is that people will be more and more reluctant to share when something does go wrong, which means they're not going to be well prepared. Yeah, which is never, uh, never where we want to be. And we're amazingly quickly running out of time here, which I think we both said was going to happen. And it's a, 
but you know that's a good good thing. Um, I, I would love to kind of come back to and maybe touch on uh, your in room experience because you know we we've sort of talked I think um, the high level stuff and and now we'd love to kind of zoom in a little bit because you've been in the room suspecting in the hours as the the boom happens. And um, yeah, like what what are those first couple of hours like? And I'm assuming there's just a lot of very elevated heart rates and emotion, and um, or maybe there's not when it's when you know the prep is in place. But it'd be great to hear from you on that. Yeah, there, there is always that that element, regardless. So being prepared yep. for that and and acknowledging that is part of the the process of preparation. So, um, but you know, the chaos comes often from within, and. Um, and the, the chaos is really in the questions that, that are being asked of, of a team to make decisions in, in very uncertain circumstances so and very volatile circumstances in some situations. Um, so having a, a clear approach to activating, having a clear, pro, a clear approach to assessing these situations um, and having a process for working your way through problems is the best means of just getting that that personal control or mm-hmm. that collective organisational control in a situation, uh, because again, you know, the 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 initial activation should be along the lines of, here's an initial assessment. We've got this potential threat that we're we're dealing with. Therefore, we're bringing our team together. The sooner you bring that team together, the more effective you find the whole response. The longer you leave that initial activation, we find that people are really chasing their tails. Um, and they're left farther behind. So if that's one o'clock in the morning when you first get the, 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 the notification that your systems have had to be shut down, then you want to be active within, you know, within half an hour to an hour. That'll position you ahead of any news, any customers, any other issues come six o'clock in the morning that will start to flow. And you are mm-hmm. going to get those messages, those issues, regardless of how much you're trying to contain it, regardless of where you think you've got it under control, you always need to prepare as if it's going to be broken regardless. So, so getting ahead of these things, getting that initial activation, get that initial assessment, and then working through what your decisions you need to make is a crucial path. And Definitely. look, I mean, I think without overgeneralizing it or over over simplifying it, there's not a huge amount of decisions that you actually need to make, funnily enough. Like the first big one is, you know, we're activating. Second one is, well, what is the assessment of the situation you're dealing with? So what's your immediate strategy? So it might be shutdown, control. Um, second decision might be who and when and how are you going to communicate with your stakeholders? Third one is really about how you're going to restore, recover. So that's going to take you a bit of time. And then the fourth one is about when you're shutting this whole thing down and restarting again. So, so over the pathway of that could be in the first few hours, it might be in days, it might be over a month. There's probably about four broad phases you might need to work through from decisioning. And so, therefore, it's really about simplifying it back into those key things you need to do at critical parts of that sort of whole path. And what we do is make sure that all the different streams, all the different functions are supporting and oriented towards that critical path to get them back into full operation whilst maintaining the continuity of the business and minimising the impact on their reputation. Fantastic. Grant, uh, we've pretty much hit uh, hit time here. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, and I think we actually get to hear more from you. Uh, you're going to be part of our uh, Mimecast Connect events, right, in in both Melbourne and Sydney? Yeah, really looking forward to, um, to, to meeting some of the clients and some of your ecosystem out there on the 23rd and 28th of February. 
uh, Melbourne and Sydney. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to being a part, being a part of those events. Yeah, likewise, and we'll get to meet in person. So let me buy you a coffee, or maybe we get to have those uh, those couple of pints and and have a good old yarn. <laughs> Who knows? And um, what I'll do is I'll um, I'll include the the link or whatever for the um, events in the show notes for today as well, so people can come along and check you out in in person. Awesome. No, thank you very much, mate. Appreciate it. And also, kind of give a shout out. You you've got a pod as well that talks in in much more detail about this. I don't know if you want to give a bit of a shout out for your pod too, and we can include a link to that. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. So yeah. I, I, Crisis Talks is the name of my podcast, and uh, in that, I, I really speak with people who've led through crises uh, and share their stories of adversity and, and resilience in the face of some really, really difficult situations. Yeah, I'm, I'm subscribed, so uh, yeah, re- recommended. Um, Grant, thanks so much for taking the time today, and uh, yeah, look forward to, to seeing you in February. Thank you very much. Take care. so much to Grant for joining us for the podcast and for being a keynote at the Mimecast Connect events in Melbourne on the 23rd of February and Sydney on the 28th of February. Registration details are in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast and do jump into our back catalogue of episodes and like, subscribe and please do leave us a review. For now, stay safe and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.